Welcome to the Department 12 podcast, where we talk about everything IO Psych. Rejoining me today is one of my first guests, I think, on the show uh, from way, way back, Dr. Richard Mendelson. How are you today, Rich? I'm doing well, Dr. Butina. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, Rich, what are you up to these days? What kind of work are you doing? Well, uh, I'm still a professor at Kaiser University and really enjoying what I'm doing there, working with some really great people, both colleagues as well as students and leadership. So uh, I'm really, really happy doing that. Um, and uh, I've also kind of found a strange niche in terms of uh, working in uh, the legal world, uh, providing expert witness testimony and you know writing up witness reports and affidavits and so on and so forth. Uh, primarily dealing with, uh, you know, school violence type things, looking at the differences between the existing policies in place that are supposed to prevent or mitigate these things, uh, as opposed to the actual practices, uh, what's actually being done in, in schools that are, you know, kind of allowing some of these things to slip through the cracks. So I've, you know, kind of used my IO training to kind of identify the flaws in the systems and, be able to shed light on them, not just to help people in, in legal situations, but also to hopefully help the school systems close some of those gaps and prevent some of these things from happening. It sounds like absolutely fascinating work and probably could be its own episode and maybe it will be at some point. Um, but I know you're also, in addition to helping in that way, you're also serving as an expert witness more and more these days. What's What's that like? Uh, it's pretty cool, actually. Um, I kind of fell into it. It wasn't something I really had planned on. Um, I have a friend who has been doing it for some time in a different field. And uh, one of the cases he was working on, they you know, had a need for somebody who not only understood education systems, but also you know, kind of had an I.O. background in terms of being able to look at the way things are supposed to be done. Uh, being able to support the way things are supposed to be done with the research and the evidence uh, and the data. And, um, you know, I, I kind of did it as a favor and it just kind of grew from there. So, you know, on any yeah. given year, I mean, I may pick up not a ton of cases, but, um, you know, I could pick up between five and 10 different cases over the course of a year. And some of them are done quickly because they settle out once things go through discovery and Others, they kind of drag on and go through the legal system. So sometimes I have to provide testimony. Mm -hmm. um, and I've done that in, uh, you know, civil court as well as uh, actually military uh, court martials, disciplinary hearings and things like that. Wow. So the first time you did that, if you don't mind my asking, how sure. nervous were you on a scale of one to ten? Okay. So the first time I ever wrote the report, I wasn't nervous at all because, you know, like everybody in the field, you we know what we're what we're doing. So it's really just putting the words on paper, so to speak. But the first time I testified was actually in a military uh, hearing. And that was incredibly nerve wracking because, you know, you're you're brought in and you're in front of a number of very high ranking military officials. And it doesn't run necessarily the way, you know, civilian court system does. Um, mm -hmm. You get grilled by the opposing counsel. And you get grilled by the three people who are essentially like the judges in those cases. Oh, um, fascinating. That, yeah, that goes on for quite some time. Uh, they want to really establish that you have knowledge and expertise in the field before they kind of allow you to provide testimony and input into whatever the case may actually be about. Um, 
So yes, it was it was uh, it was a very nerve wracking thing. The environment feels different because it's a, a very military presence yeah. of a thing, and you know, in that case, I was the one person who was not affiliated with the military. Um, all of the people involved in the case were, all of the people overseeing it were. So yes, it was uh, it was very very nerve wracking. Shoo. <laughs> and people think their dissertation defenses are hard. <laughs> yeah, that one's having, having a counsel and the three judges and grilling yeah. you on your qualifications to make sure you know what you're talking about sounds like uh, it, not a lot of fun, uh, but clearly he cut through it. Now, we yep. wanted to talk today about a, a particular topic that actually came up on LinkedIn, which more and more I find actually having some pretty cool substantive conversations out there on yep. LinkedIn. Uh, but for those who don't know, I share research every week, I, I usually in the form of a poll. So mm -hmm. I'll share what the experiment yeah. was or the study mm -hmm. was, and then ask people to to guess or estimate or whatever you want to call it, uh, what they think the outcome was. Uh, in this case, I uh, shared a an experiment on time theft. Basically, this is doing anything at work other than working. So daydreaming, shopping on Amazon, whatever. Uh, researchers presented these participants with one or two paragraphs. So this is sort of a, a priming thing. Uh, group A got this message that shows that 80% of all employed individuals admit to spending a lot of time doing things that aren't directly related to work. And group B got this kind of control message that just said, hey, you know, we're interested in, in people's perceptions of, of doing things that are not directly related to work. And then they asked them to, you know, no. Uh, fill out a survey that said how willing they were, the survey respondents, uh, to to engage in some time theft uh, after doing this. <laughs> and it, you might expect the researchers found that group A that were given this uh, social cue that time theft is A-OK, -okay, were more likely to to say that, yeah, I'll, I'll steal some time. Time theft is A-OK. -okay. Um, without getting a whole lot into the, the design um, or anything about this research, which you made a comment that really got my attention. Um, and you you started off by saying, you know, I don't think this is going to be popular, but you feel like anything that's not specifically a time-based profession, like shift work, uh, for example, or, you know, some form of hospitality, that there shouldn't be time tracking. You know, that, that okay. making uh, folks who don't have time-tied jobs track time is a form of time theft. It's just not productive. Uh, so, yeah, I mean... Say more about that, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, so first, I, I I know that I know about myself enough to to know that there are times I'm quite contrarian, and I've been told that by a number of people in our field, you know, colleagues. But I think in this particular type of a situation, I mean, if we learned anything through, you know, the the experience with the the COVID pandemic and the ensuing lockdowns, it's that many jobs can be done in a remote capacity, mm -hmm. and you know, ultimately, I think that we're seeing the the gig economy is continuing to grow. Uh, in fact, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff out there online, uh, you know, with with all kinds of numbers and stats. But you know, the general consensus in a lot of these places that you look, uh, you'll see just in the U.S., they expect the gig economy to grow to you know over 76 million people working in a freelance capacity, and ultimately. You know, when you have a job that that requires a level of expertise, uh, I, I think that you don't necessarily need to punch a time clock. I mean, if you look at the way things are done, for example, if, if you were to go into a restaurant and order a pizza, 
you're paying the people there to provide you with a product, right? You're right. not paying them for the time they put into creating that product. I mean, whether it takes five minutes or 15 minutes, you're, you're paying for the pizza. Sure. Um, the same thing with things like, you know, graphic design. I mean, uh, a lot of the gig economy type jobs that are out there. And I kind of look at it from a perspective of, you know, when you have situations in which you're forced to punch yeah. a time clock and, you know, you're not just going through the motions, like you're, you're at home or, or you're working and somebody's actually monitoring whether or not you're seated at your computer during that time, just for the sake of ensuring that you are present there while you're clocked yeah. in. I think that's nonsensical. I mean, in this day and age, we have to recognize our economy yeah. is not that way anymore. Yeah, and, I think that kind of, I think I, I don't think I disagree with, with almost anything that you said. I definitely agree with you that this sort of covert surveillance that is sometimes happening to make sure butts are in seats is intrusive. Well, yeah. Inappropriate. Yeah. Well, let's say intrusive. Um, and yeah, that also could be a whole other episode, but I don't think anybody uh, on this show is going to be arguing for that. Um, but I feel like maybe that's a little bit of a dichotomy to, to go all the way to, to that. I, I guess I would just think more about like, just, Hey, track your hours. How long did it take you to work on that? Uh, you sure. mentioned graphic design, which is a, a great example. So, you know, when I get a completed design, you're right. It doesn't matter. Um, the quality of it is not dependent on how long it took the designer to make it. Correct. Um, however... Um, the speed at which I get the design, which is part of what I'm paying for, is also pretty important. I, when I, you know, I work with graphic designers a lot and have for about 20 years. And when you shared that, I was like, wow, they're, they're not going to recognize their profession in this because that is definitely not like, um, that, that's not a freedom that they have to take as long as they want on, on a design. And, and I feel like that's probably true for almost every kind of knowledge work uh, out there. Um, time really does matter because although um, the, the, the end product quality is not dependent on the time necessarily, the delivery Correct. and that therefore the ability to create more of those products depends on time. So it seems to me like tracking time is still really important. It, it can be, but I think what we're, I'm glad you brought that up because if you think about it logically, right? Like if you take the two of us, for example, if both of us are, we'll just keep with graphic designers, right? And sure. let's say that we're able to generate work that's of, you know, similar quality, right? If it takes mm -hmm. you an hour to do that work and it takes me two hours to do that work, mm -hmm. we're in the same position in an organization. If we've been there the same time, in all likelihood, we're making very similar wages. But because it takes you twice as long, or I'm sorry, it takes me twice as long as you to do the work you're going to be producing almost double because that's what's going to be demanded of you. Whereas I may be producing at my pace, creating half of what you're creating in that same time period. And to me, the issue is, is that you end up in a situation where people who are more talented or more capable or perhaps more experienced, maybe it's not about talent or ability, it's just more experience, they kind of get punished with heavier workloads. And we see this happening across the board in many fields. Instead of employees who are doing the the, the best work for the yeah. organization being somehow rewarded, the reward seems to be coming in the form of more work and more responsibility. 
And in this day and age, that added responsibility often comes without any added compensation, any titular promotion, or any type of tangible benefit for the person who's generating that work. So yeah, in I a sense, being you're yeah, having work that you're saying. How would you how would you go about addressing that situation or fixing it without having an idea of how much work each person is capable of by by tracking their time and productivity? Well, I think in a lot of ways the gig economy has kind of already done that, and I, I'm not saying the gig economy setup will work for everyone, right? I, I know that there are fields that are heavily going to be time dependent. Uh, you know, first responders, for example, it's not about who puts the fires out the best. It's about you need people in the firehouse at all times, mm -hmm. you know? So obviously there are going to be fields where this just is just not applicable. But I think in fields where people are right now being compensated for their time, the gig economy tends to compensate people for their work product. So you have people who are able to really set the, the terms for their own work engagements. They're able to price themselves where they believe their value is, dependent mm -hmm. on demands and so forth. I think what we're seeing is, is a shift uh, towards more of almost like an individual capitalistic type of a, a work economy. And I know capitalism can be considered a dirty word in a lot of circles, yeah. and that, I get that. But I think the point here is... When you have a job or a skill set that enables you to dictate the terms of your own employment, it really shifts power away from large organizations and puts it in the hand of the workers. And in a lot of ways, if you go back to like, you know, the original ideas and ideologies of like why people unionized and, you know, to make sure people were being fairly compensated, were being able to work reasonable hours and have good work conditions. I mean, in a lot of ways, the gig economy can can put that in the hands of every individual to choose where they work from, what hours they put in, and essentially how much they charge for the services that they're able to provide. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's difficult. Uh, the transition will be challenging, but I think the reality is, is that we have right now a number of organizations that are trying to kind of, you know, essentially force people to go back to the office, back to being mm -hmm. on site. And, you know, again, if, if it's necessary, I mean, there's no argument against it. But I think in a lot of places, we've already seen that people are able to do the work at a high level, even if they're working remote. So to have them come back and force them to be in the office, I mean, essentially, organizations are kind of like saying, okay, we're going to essentially give our best people a reason to look elsewhere where they have the freedom. See, freedom tends to be more of an incentive these days than a lot of other forms of compensation because of the rise of technology and, and mobile devices. We have the ability to do a tremendous number of jobs and serve in a huge number of functions in a remote capacity. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. I understand with the most of what, um, arrogance of leaders. So I agree with most of what you said. I, I don't think anybody's arguing for a forced return to office. Um, I'm not sure exactly how we got from A to B, but I, I want to talk to you about the, this idea about the, the gig worker. Um, okay. Because, you know, in a sense, I do that myself with consulting and, and that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, but if I'm not tracking my time, and, and forget about an employer, but if I'm not tracking my time, how do I even know what to offer uh, to clients? You know, 
how can I even say, yes, I can help you with this course without knowing, you know, sort of how it would fit into my schedule, what I could do. I, I think maybe where we're talking past each other is that I'm thinking because I've spent so much of my life, I guess, working in, in HR related roles of how tracking time can be used to benefit the employee or to protect okay. the employee versus tracking time as a way of shaking your finger at someone and, and trying to make sure that they're in their, their seat at the right time. So an example of this would be, yeah, you're right. You know, there's this wild variation in how long it takes to do a project. No. And do you have people on your team who, because they're maybe earlier in their career, less experienced or whatever, yeah. you know, especially if they're working from home and you're not, you know, monitoring them or anything, are they putting in like 12, 14 hour days every day, seven days a week as a, as a manager, I really want to know that so we can stop it. Um, yeah. you know, we can help. Uh, I also need to know that for like planning. Um, how, how can I ever promise anything to anyone without knowing what it would take? And I wonder if that's it. I wonder if that is like just we're coming at this from different angles. Well, I think we're looking at it just from the, like you were saying, like different perspectives. I mean, you, you're you viewing this from the perspective of uh, benevolent leadership, wanting to be able to help the employees, wanting to be able to do the right thing, uh, making sure people aren't taking on too much, aren't putting in those 14 or 15 hour days regularly. Um but I think that much like many other things that have become policy or, or law, the intent was good, but the application of it ends up being a negative force, right? So, for example, um, you know, if, if you have a person who is working in a place and they complete their work in, let's say, four hours, and they're paid based on a, a time clock, if they're doing the same amount of work as another person who takes six or eight hours to do it, they're going to have their time filled with more work, like I was mm -hmm. saying earlier. But yeah. if you're looking at this from a benevolent perspective and it's being used to help the personnel, then I think it's great to track time, right? I just don't think that time should necessarily be a factor of compensation in those fields where it's really the final product or outcome that is relevant, right? Like, I mean, it, let, let's let's be honest here. I mean, you know, if if you, God forbid, woke up and you had chest pain and you went in and you needed an operation on your heart, whoever your surgeon is, that operation, that may take them 45 minutes, but it saves your life, right? So do you, do you argue and say, I only want to pay you for 45 minutes of your time? Or are you really getting the value from them of the many years of training, expertise, and experience that they have that allowed them to do such a good job in 45 minutes? And I think that's the inherent difference. If if we're paying people based on their expertise and the value of what they create, I think you're going to see a large improvement in you know things like job satisfaction. Um, I think you're going to have people who are going to have higher levels of perceived career success because they're able to set their own value in their own terms, as opposed to having to fit into the mold of an existing organization that at this point, for all intents and purposes, doesn't necessarily need to police your time to use it against you. You know what I'm saying? 
And I, I think that's like more ways of thinking about it, you know? I, I think you're you know, looking I, at it from that benevolent perspective, yeah. which is great and commendable. Well, you know, I, I, it's not completely benevolent. I, I'd also want, you know, from a manager's point of view to be able to plan work and that kind of thing. But I do think maybe we're looking at this just from different angles. But I think there is, you know, we got to wrap up soon, but I think there okay. is something that we could probably agree on, which is that if... You know, our field of industrial and organizational psychology was doing a better job of helping people measure productivity, to, to measure contribution, however we want to put it, but to measure the real value of the work as provided. If we were better able to equip people to measure that, we wouldn't be having this discussion about time. I agree a million percent. All right. Rich, this was great conversation. I'm probably yeah, going to have you back. We're going to talk about this expert witness stuff because it's totally fascinating. Uh, if people Love want to reach out to you, uh, where can they find you? So um, you can still get me on X or Twitter or whatever you're calling it these days. Uh, it's at R. Mendelson, PhD. Um, you know, that's kind of like I, I kind of do more like, you know, work related type stuff on there. Um, but if anybody's interested in like, you know, just hobbies and things like that, like for me, I like to ride my motorcycle. I know we have a few people in our field who ride, um, connect with me on Instagram. Uh, and that's, uh, I think it's at R Mendelson PhD as well. Um, you know, of course, LinkedIn, I'm, I'm always on your posts. I know you and I are connected, so certainly they can get me there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd love to connect with more people in the field and I know that the podcast is growing a lot in, uh, in popularity. I actually, uh, I don't think I mentioned it to you, but I was traveling about a week ago and somebody on the plane with me was actually listening to one of your podcasts. I think it was Look, one. Yeah, with, uh, yeah, it was pretty yeah. cool. They were listening to one. I think it was uh, Mike Chetta and Sai Islam. Uh, oh, okay. One of the uh, earlier ones. But yeah, I mean, I, I saw it and I did. Wow, that's great, man. I know that those guys. Wild. It's cool, you know? Yeah. So well, thank you very much for sharing that. We will make sure we get your correct links to all these networks in the show notes. So if anybody's listening, you want to connect with Rich. Uh, check the show notes. The links will be there. Also, mm -hmm. connect with me and Rich on LinkedIn, and you can follow these polls that, that spark some of these conversations sometime. And uh, Great. Thanks for being here, Rich. My pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm.